0: Well, I did flirt with the idea of a, um, uh, and and, you know, I just realized, and I haven't, and I don't see anyone who can answer this question in the room right now. Are we having Sunday school next Sunday morning? Or just the service? I honestly don't know. Uh, So, I still would have time, though it's going to be a really busy week. I... Might still have some time uh, to work in a church history thing uh, about the, the history of, of incarnational celebrations. Um, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I have the service. I'll be preaching the Sunday morning service. But I honestly don't know what the schedule is as far as... Uh, I haven't been told that there's not going to be a uh, Sunday school service, so... I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling someone's going to find out uh, right now. Generally when, when Sean walks out of the room it's for some reason like that. But uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but I'm just going to press on where we are in church history. This is the 20th lesson. I told you last time we did this in the 1990s. Uh, we only had 52 lessons and we covered the whole whole nine yards. We are going much more slowly uh, this time than we did last time. Now, I'm not sure if that's just because I'm getting old uh, and hence I have to move more slowly uh, than I did before um, or just, just what it is, but I haven't received too many. We will have Sunday School. Now, well, I can't, I can't make promises Uh, Because I've got a lot of stuff this week. I'm sorry, but I'll try Uh, it would be I think at some point last year I did something sort of like that, but We'll see we'll see if we can we can whip something together. That would be uh, of of interest to everybody But we're going to stick with where we are and we had just started looking at the Alexandrian school uh, which the the city of Alexandria Egypt was an extremely important city uh, not only in trade um, but also because of its libraries and its philosophers uh, Alexandria was really the gateway to Egypt um, you remember the stories of Cleopatra and so there was, there was uh, military relevance uh Because of its location, uh, there was a tremendous amount of, of, of trade and travel, and hence it, it made it a rival in some ways to Rome. Uh, but what it also meant is it was it was a cosmopolitan city, a city of the world, and hence because there was a strong Jewish presence in Alexandria, the Judaism. Of Ale- the Ale- Alexandrian Judaism, was a Judaism that had a broader perspective than Judean Judaism did. Um, you had far less contact with the rest of the world going through Jerusalem than you did Alexandria, and so you had much more of a philosophical bent to the Judaism in in Alexandria and especially the most famous Jewish philosopher or teacher of Alexandria would be Philo uh, contemporary with the Apostle Paul basically and so um, eventually Alexandria's libraries would be the largest in the world Uh, sadly they were damaged and destroyed a number of different times by through battles and war and things like that but, but one of the major times was actually the instigation of Christians uh, later on in history because of the the pagan material in those libraries and so on and so forth. But also uh, another thing to keep in mind about Alexandria is is a lot of the papyri that we have uh, not only of the New Testament comes from Egypt uh, and areas around Alexandria but the secular papyri that have shed so much light, not only on the language. You know, there was a time not very long ago when people thought that the Greek of the New Testament was a Holy Spirit Greek. It was a special Greek designed by the Holy Spirit just to write the New Testament because we had so little little evidence of it existing in antiquity. Well, now we have lots of evidence of it existing in antiquity, and now we know it was Koine Greek, Koine meaning common. It was the common Greek of the day, uh, which makes perfect sense. If you want the gospel to go out to all the world, you're not going to put it in some language that no one's ever heard of before. Uh, it's going to be in a language that people can be able to understand. And so, um, a lot of that secular stuff, which often is just uh, bills of sale, um, correspondence from soldiers going back home, and stuff like that. You would think that wouldn't be overly relevant, but it is. It's extremely relevant. It's relevant not only for providing dates and background information uh, but it's also relevant in uh, identifying handwriting styles of different times and periods of time and, and, and stuff like that. So that, a lot of that material from Alexandria has been extremely important in providing background light and, and information that has uh, uh, ended up improving, for example, the lexicons that we have uh, that define the meanings of words as, as they were being used at that time in, in history. So, Alexandria is important and so when a school of Christianity becomes established in Alexandria, um, obviously that's going to have great impact around the world because just as a church in Rome has influence around the world because of all the correspondence and people traveling through and so on and so forth. Same thing in Alexandria and they're going to take on the character of the intellectual life of that particular city which in the case of Alexandria means that pretty much as we would expect when we look at the Alexandrian school it tends to be very heavy on philosophy Uh, Speculative theology, Um, in some instances textual critical studies, uh, as we see in origin, uh, a study of uh, manuscripts and differences in manuscripts and things like that. Um, In many ways there are negative things to be said concerning the Alexandrian school but in other ways uh, positive things it's it's got to be taken both the good and the bad so let's uh, let's consider it um, what's our time period well uh, i was about to say the first superintendent or leader of this school uh, is a fellow by the name of pantanus huh let's see i do not remember which one is the one that actually works Pantanus, and you're looking at the end, uh, well, uh, he runs it until 190, so, so there you're, you're getting your idea of, of the time frame uh, there. Pantanus is the first superintendent that had no building, no faculty. Uh, he was a converted Stoic philosopher. Uh, And he eventually left around 190 uh, to work as a missionary in India. So he left uh, Egypt and went off to work as a missionary in India and was succeeded by a big name uh, in uh, history, Clement of Alexandria. So he takes over in 190. And I won't spend too much time on Clement. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, the two big names are Clement and Origin, and we, we make note of them. We recognize some of the important contributions, but my gut feeling, in essence, is that in general, um, you have more negative than positive uh, coming from these particular sources? Um, Clement was born around 150 of Greek stock. He was probably educated in Athens, and he led the school for 12 years until 202 AD. Um, At that time, it seems that the persecution under Septimus Severus, uh, forced him to flee. Uh, we find him in 211 in Antioch, and he died somewhere around 220. So there you you have the time frames for Clement of Alexandria. Uh, Clement viewed w- his his primary work is called the Stromata. I've read sections of it and. As people like to say on Facebook these days when someone links you to something and and says you got to watch this and it's uh, two minutes and 20 seconds long and you you get done and your response to them on Facebook is that's two minutes and 20 seconds of my life I'm never getting back is how you basically say why did you force me to watch that Uh, because that was utterly irrelevant well um, the, the time I spent in the dramata uh, probably is not irrelevant if you teach church history, I suppose. But um, as far as edification was concerned, eh, not so much. Um, he viewed Christianity as the highest of philosophies. The highest of philosophies. Um, he believed that all truth was God's truth. And hence, one should embrace truth wherever one found it. Well, I suppose if something is true, it's true because God made it true. And human philosophy, as far as it is true, uh, finds its origin in God. I suppose on that level, you, you can you can go there. Um, but there are Hierarchies of truths, there's relationships of truths, there's presuppositions upon which everything's built, and foundations and things like that. And the problem is with, with Clement's perspective, uh, his theology is a strange mixture of Christianity, Stoicism, and Platonism. And where the one ends and the other begins is somewhat difficult to understand. Now it's fully understandable if you're if you know um, if uh, Pantanus was a converted Stoic philosopher and uh, Clemens uh, educated in Athens. um, It's it's fully understandable why uh, there are questions that need to be answered as the gospel encounters the culture of the world. Uh, That's fully understandable. The question has, and, and what we're going to see, um, you know, we, we, did we, we haven't looked at Tertullian. Yeah, we did look at Tertullian. Remember what Tertullian's famous statement. What, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Um, and everybody at one point or another has to make a decision as to where the proper dividing line is going to be in regards to utilization of philosophical categories, language, you know, the great danger has always been to avoid uh, the, the scandal of First Corinthians chapter one, which says that the gospel is foolishness to the world. That to those who are seeking wisdom, very clearly he's referring to philosophers, lovers of wisdom those who are seeking wisdom, the message of a crucified Messiah is always going to be moria, foolishness. And there's always a a, a tendency on the part of the church to be wanting to be accepted in Athens. To have the approbation of of the academy. But on the other hand, so so we, we see people who go way too far and who use as the matrix of everything they read in scripture a foreign philosophy that was not a part of the apostle 's thinking, and the result is a as we 'll see with origin a mess, but then the other tendency on the other hand there 's always you know balance there 's two sides you know you can you can fall off of a uh, of a balance beam. I suppose you can fall forward and whack your head on it, but uh, I have seen that happen. But, but generally, you're going one way or the other. okay? Um, and on the other side, you have the tendency to an isolationist perspective, where we build our little enclaves and we create our own little vocabulary. And it's like, well, they are them, and them is out there. And we've got what we like over here, and so we're just going to stay over here. And that just must mean that they're on their way, they're, they're, they're on the broad path to hell. And we're on the narrow road, and we're happy with this. And, and so we're not going to engage uh, the world. And so you have these two competing tendencies. And most people end up somewhere on that spectrum solely by tradition. It's just, it's just. This is the way we've done it in my church, and uh, the people I listen to have sort of come down at this point, and I'm comfortable with that. It's not because we've actually thought it through. Um, it's just sort of we we inherit it, because uh, most of us are not going to be spending almost any of our time uh, studying. Uh, Platonism or Stoicism or, or any of these types of things. And so, in any way, critically engaging with any of that stuff is really beyond what most of us are equipped to do in the first place. Um, so it's easy to look at Clement and go, oh, Clement, you you didn't go to Westminster Theological Seminary, did you? No, oh, you know. Um, but if you were raised in Athens at, in the middle of of the second century uh, and embraced Christianity and felt that Christianity needed to address your culture then it's understandable and yet had deleterious results as we will as we will see. Um, We also find the influence of Philo again the Jewish writer philosopher uh, contemporaneous with Christ and Paul uh, can be seen very much in uh, in Clement's Stromata as well. We move from Clement to the big name of the Alexandrian school and that is Origen. And Origen uh, was born, uh, born in 185 uh, some of you have seen the odd uh, waste of, of time uh, that took place. He died in 253. The odd waste of time that took place in a debate between myself and Robert St. Genis years and years ago. During the cross-examination he said, Well, so, so James, when, uh, when, when was, what, what's the dates for origin? And I was like, I I forget exactly how it went, but but because his the majority of his work was in the third century, I said, well, early third century. Uh, No, he was born 185. Yeah, he wasn't writing anything back then. Okay, I I mean, I mean, what's what's the point here? But uh, so born in the late late second century, dies middle of the third century. Now. His father was named Leonides. and the story is told uh, that under the same persecution that caused Clement uh, to flee, that Leonides was martyred, and Origen, as a young man, uh, a teenager. Uh, wanted to die with his father and so he was going to go with his father and become a martyr with his father and his mother saved his life because she recognized that he was a very um, demure uh, Not that's not the word I'm looking for and humble isn't the um, word chaste, yeah Shy, yeah. But if you if you always be very careful about what you're wearing and and yeah but modest, okay. Um, realizing that this was uh, origin's nature, um, she hid his clothing. She hid all of his clothing, uh, so he could not leave the house because he, he's not going to go die a martyr naked. Um, and that's why he didn't go with Leonides to his death and that's how she saved his life so there you go Um, so I believe he was 17 at that point in time and so the very next year though only 18 years of age so at 18 years of age uh, he was chosen to take Clement's place at the catechetical Catechetical school of Alexandria. So at 18 years of age his his brilliance was already recognized uh, so much so that with the opening at Clement's fleeing from Alexandria, Origen was chosen to uh, take his place. His fame spread widely. He was sought after uh, by many of his day His works to this day fill 600 volumes. Uh, Basically for most of his life, he had a scribe with him day and night who would write down everything. Now I suppose if we all had a scribe with us day and night, we could fill 600 volumes too but I'm not sure it would be really worth 600 (laughs) volumes Um, uh, or the paper or the scribe's life or the pen or the ink or whatever else Uh, and I'll be perfectly honest with you not everything in origins works is worth the pen and the paper and the ink as well but um, it is astounding to consider the, the breadth of the topics that the man did address, you may disagree with his conclusions, um, but uh, you know it, it's funny that there, there, there is an unfortunate tendency amongst us conservatives to, you know, I, I see I see this happen. For example, most of you know that I fairly regularly criticize the theology and apologetic methodology of probably the most famous Christian apologist today, William Lane Craig. And I do so because Dr. Craig um, is not only a evidentialist and so on an on a apologetic level I have real issues with the, with the foundational approaches that he takes, but he's also a Molinist, which is a, a philosophical theory that was created by a Jesuit after the Reformation to get around the preaching of the sovereignty of God is what it was. The Jesuits have already abandoned it, but uh, it, it's still alive only because uh, of people like William Lane Craig. Well, I believe William Lane Craig's a Christian, and I attempt to be respectful even though we have serious, serious disagreements. You've never, ever heard me say that William Lane Craig is stupid or an idiot or dumb. or You've never, you've never heard me say any of that. Because I'm not going to say that. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. Sometimes we have a problem recognizing that people can be absolutely brilliant, far more brilliant than we are, and still wrong. And I think that's part of the way the world thinks, because the world thinks the number of letters you have after your name uh, determines what your actual intelligence and truth quotient is. And that's not the case. But we've bought into it. And so it, it really bugs me when I see people uh, I'll be in a chat channel or something you know somebody will make a comment on Facebook or something like that uh, and like oh, I just can't believe how dumb that guy is he's not dumb just because you disagree with him doesn't mean he's dumb I mean brilliant people say stupid things um, and for different reasons you know we all have blind spots and sometimes the more brilliant you are the more the more light you shine upon the places where the light ain't hitting uh, you know um, you you where when when can you see the deepest shadow, but only in the brightest light, right? So anyway, we, that does seem to be a problem that we have. Is we can look at someone at or like origin and we have to go, oh real issues of theology, pre-existence, universalism, all sorts of really weird stuff. Um and so that must mean he was dumb. No, he wasn't. And that that's I, I think sometimes conservatives have almost a fear well if i if i admit that people who disagree with me can be smart then maybe i'm not right uh, there's there's a real problem with your understanding of truth and 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 things like that if if that's if that's the case so anyways uh, i think i've mentioned to you that of those 600 volumes probably only 20 or 30 have been translated uh into the english language so Obviously, his major works have been, but there's just all sorts of stuff that, well, look, there, ain't, there isn't a whole lot of money in origin books, you know? I mean, do you, do you see them on anybody's top 20 Christmas list, you know, right now? It's, it's just really not there. Um, so it takes money to print books and to do translations and stuff like that, and so it comes out really slowly because generally some poor graduate student who's working on his PhD finds some as yet untranslated work by origin, and you translate it and do, you write your dissertation on something uh, that way and you and your reader the doctoral readers are the only people who will ever read that uh, it gets stuck in an archive someplace and and there it turns to cyberdust but uh, that 's why it comes out as slowly as it uh, as it does he uh, uh, he was an ascetic the ascetic Movement. Um, Let me see here. Uh, Yeah, development of monasticism. This is coming up, so we will be talking about uh, the development of monasticism and the ascetic movement a little bit later on. There are some fascinating stories, such as Simon Stilotes. Simon Stilotes, Simon the Stylite. Do you know there were people who used to build pillars and live on them? And that was considered an act of spirituality. And you'd have disciples who would bring you food, and and you they send up food and bring down waste, and and uh, you rain rain snow desert heat. You just up there on that pillar, and that's yeah. Anyway, so um, we'll we'll talk about Simon Stylotis uh, later on, but uh, yeah, the Pillar Saints they were. Yeah, uh, so he was uh, an ascetic, wore a slave collar all of his life. He owned but one coat, no shoes. Uh, Never drank wine, ate sparingly, slept on the floor, spent much of the night in prayer. So uh, all of what would become the standards of... uh, ascetic spirituality, um, Origen is an early example of this. What's probably most famous about Origen as to his, his, him personally is that as a youth he emasculated himself. Um, yeah, he took a knife and he emasculated himself. Now, he repented of that later in life. He later in life determined that that was a sinful act, that it was wrong. Um, but as a youth, he felt that that was the best way to deal with uh, desires that he was convinced were sinful desires. And so he emasculated himself. Um, it's one of the reasons it's not saint origin. You've never heard, you've never heard anybody say saint origin. The Roman Catholic Church does not consider Origen a saint for many reasons. Teachings and behaviors both would uh, prohibit Origen from being considered um, along these these lines. Um, The canons of the church prohibited anyone who had been emasculated from entering into sacred office. Despite this, he was ordained a presbyter by bishops outside of Alexandria. This and his growing fame all across the empire caused the Bishop of Alexandria, uh, Demetrius, to convene a council against Origen and to have him condemned and excommunicated. So Origen went to Caesarea, founded another school which soon rivaled the school in Alexandria. Toward the end of his life he was invited to return to Alexandria after Demetrius' death, but he was caught up in the Decian persecution, another one of the uh, empire-wide persecutions well this is really the beginning of the truly empire wide persecution in the 250s and though he was released the torture he underwent uh, while in prison eventually resulted in his death now he is vitally important in the discussion of a number of aspects of early church history uh, obviously in places like Westminster and and schools like that, you probably have um, elective courses solely on origin, and you'd have plenty of material uh, to be able to do that. It wouldn't be difficult to do at all. Um, He does stand as a giant in many ways. Um, I've already mentioned this a number of times, but now we're getting to the individuals themselves, but there are two vitally important, well-known early church fathers who knew both biblical languages and only two. Now, there, there may have been minor individuals someplace else who had various levels, but actually had proficiency so as to be able to examine texts and, and engage the text in a meaningful fashion. There are only two, Origen and Jerome. Origen and Jerome. Uh, You need to put that right together with Council of Nicaea in 325. So we're we're talking final examination here, okay? So and and remember, um, the final examination enforcer, even though he's not here this morning, will be George Soto. So um, if you oh I'm sorry, there you are. You're you're not in your normal spot, okay? So the the feng shui of the room is just it's just so messed up here. But um, but yeah, so George what George will do um is he's gonna be my grader. And uh you you turn your paper in, you stand there, and he's gonna grade it, and then he says, hand please and you, you put you put your hand out. And if it's if it's too low, well let's just, just think about what George could do to a unprotected hand, okay? You know, uh it, it you know I can't guarantee that all the digits will still be where they're supposed to be, things like that. You know. So, this is, a, this is a pretty serious class, okay? Uh, very, very, very serious. So, uh, the minimum levels of passing. Uh, one of the things need Council of Nicaea, 325. Uh, and two early church fathers who, uh, who knew both the biblical languages, Origen and Jerome. So, just make sure to. You, you, you getting these down? You're not taking any notes, so you're pretty confident. <laughs> it's recorded. It's recorded, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, we hope. You know, uh, The guy next to you in the funny sweater is, uh, is, is in charge of all that, so you never know. Yes, sir, uh, doctor, uh, you know you're starting to look more and more like B.B. Warfield. Did you know that? Uh, you're starting to remind me more of Benjamin Warfield. I've been to his grave, by the way. It's, uh, it's very not, I'm not wishing on anything on you. I'm just simply saying I've been there. Talk about schools in Alexandria and origin founding the school in Caesarea, um, Is this is this like the, the, the schools in Athens, where it's very informal and philosophical schools? Yes. So, so it's not a formalized like you know, buildings and personal libraries and stuff. No, it's like guys meeting. But well, they no, people would travel from all over the world to study there, but they would basically be begging for food. And meeting outdoors, uh, yeah, yeah, almost all of those will eventually become institutionalized, <laughs> but that 's almost always after the time of their greatest influence and after the greatest teachers leave them, you know so uh, but at first it 's always this really vital there 's the guy let 's sit on the hillside and and learn at his feet type thing. Uh, that only eventually develops into a building and a, and a faculty and that kind of thing, yeah, definitely. Brother Callahan, did you? Just just, 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 just waving, gotcha. Yes, uh, George has a question. We need to make sure George is clear on these things because if he's doing the grading he needs to be very, very clear on these things, yes. The uh, Luther read a lot of origin because of the same nature he slept on the floor and whipped himself and that no. no, no actually Luther was a part of the Augustinian order um, but uh, there was when we get into the development of monasticism uh, it normally would be next week but maybe the week after that um, we get into the development of monasticism all of the medieval Catholic orders Franciscans, Dominicans, uh, the Augustinians uh, the rule of St. Benedict and things like that, the, the nightly prayers, uh, the fastings, the, the uh, den- denial of physical comforts, sleeping on the floor as penance, things like that. Uh, that was pretty much a universal aspect across all of the, uh, the orders at that time. Uh, and it wouldn't require you to re- recognize that origin had anything to do with that. It just simply had become the universal experience of all the monastic orders by the time of, of Luther's day. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Okay. Um, so, uh, he, I mentioned he's one of the only two, two new. He wrote, there it is, something very important called the Hexapla. And, uh, the Hexapla, and uh, the Hexapla, as you can sort of tell by looking at it, is a multi-columned work. Uh, yes, a six-column work. Uh, so you'd probably basically three on each page, um, comparing different textual streams. Of information, so in other words, origin becomes very important for us when uh, when you look at a modern Greek New Testament, such as especially the United Bible Society's fifth edition, um, which is th- there are two primary printed texts as of the recording of this particular lecture: um, the United Bible Society's fifth edition and the Nestle Aland twenty eighth edition. The UBS is normally the one that first year Greek students get mainly because the font's bigger, easier to read, and it doesn't look as intimidating uh, as the, as the Nestle-Aland text does. The UBS is actually designed for Bible translators who are translating other languages, so it has a minimum number of textual variants in it that are, it, it limits it to the places where the variant would impact how you're translating into another language. But what it does is when it gives you the data as to who had what reading, it gives you a lot more information than Nasty Allen does and one of the things it does is it goes through the early church fathers and so over and over again you'll see OR that's origin and then you'll have something like OR3 and then in, in the superscript so it looked like it looked like this uh, OR37 or something like that and then the variant down here, where it's the other side, will be OR four seven. So what are they telling you? Well, in three in three out of the seven times that Origin references this text, he has it this way, and four times he has it that way. So they've even gone through what's available uh, and have broken it down, and so there are many places where where Origin, in writing about textual issues will say, I have seen manuscripts that say this or say that. Well, man, that's a, that's a goldmine around 220-230 AD. That's a goldmine of information to go, you know, where had, he, where had he seen this? Where had he seen that? Um, assuming that we can trust everything that Origen says and when it comes to the textual issues it's not like he had some kind of an axe to grind um, there, there, I've never seen anyone say you know Origin was fudging the numbers because of theology or something like that. It, 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 as far as his textual work is concerned he seems to have just been had one idea and that is a, we need to know what was originally written and so we're dealing with the text on that level so he is pretty important um, his asceticism, the fact that he was an ascetic, obviously had a huge influence on his, the students. and So he'd have students who would study at the School of Alexandria and then they go out and what are they doing? They are spreading uh, the influence of asceticism and the, the idea that this is the spiritual standard. And that is a problem because it's not the spiritual standard from the New Testament perspective. Um, that's important. But the greatest area of Origen's impact seems to be in the area of exegesis. Or, in this case, eisegesis. I suppose I should make sure that everyone, you know, we use, we use these terms all the time, and I'm, I'm assuming that everybody automatically knows, uh, but it's always good just to make sure. Uh, and especially how to spell them, because some people go, hmm. And that's wrong. It's not isogesis as in isolating something. It's eisegesis, reading into something. Um, exegesis is what we try to do consistently and regularly uh, in our teaching uh, through books of the Bible and things like that. Uh, exegesis is reading out of the text its meaning so it is taking into consideration the author, his original audience, the context, the language uh, the backgrounds, all these things, uh, who the original audience was, what he intended to communicate, what his language was, and just all sorts of things that go into to doing uh, proper exegesis but the point is that you want to understand what the original author intended to communicate over against eisegesis, where you're taking a meaning or a concept and you're reading it into. eis means into a reading into the text that would have been unfamiliar or unknown to the original author, the original audience. It does not reflect the language, context, culture, whatever else it might be. Sadly, uh, across our land today from pulpits you will be getting a whole lot more of this than you will be getting of that. And Part of the reason is, if you don't believe that the original text is truly authoritative then you are not going to be spending much effort to try to represent the intentions of that original text. If the idea is I need to entertain these people, I need to excite these people, I need to get these people to do what I want them to do, this is your way to go so if you come up with a sermon topic and then go hunting for a text that's the perfect recipe for eisegesis Um, and I can give you example after example after example after example of eisegesis Uh, this is what we want to avoid and this is what we want to do and Origen and his method of interpretation ended up having tremendously negative impacts upon doing this and opening the door for this and the reason for this is what's called the allegorical method of interpretation which I figured we would have gotten through by now but we didn't and you cannot do it in 35 seconds so it will be fairly easy for me to remember that we are at the allegorical method in origin Uh, as our breakpoint after lesson number 20 uh, in the church history series. So with that, let's uh, close our, our time. Once again, Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. And we do pray and ask that you would help us once again to learn from the light of history, to be thankful for those who went before us. Uh, and yet also to learn from their their errors as well as the things you did in them uh, by your spirit that we can gain confidence from and encouragement from. Be with us now as we go into worship. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.